um, Dwayne's comments about homiletics are, are nice. Uh, in talking to you as a seminar, uh, I was kind of given carte blanche, you know, what I wanted to uh, discuss. Almost everything else I'm talking about while I'm here has been homiletics oriented. I did want to change that up just a little bit and talk about what I know either professors or those who will be training the next generation of uh, students who will be in ministry um, need to be concerned about because I know I've been concerned about it, and that is how we prepare the next generation. And um, it, it, it may just be helpful to have us all think about some of the tensions and understanding, uh, misunderstanding that even may occur in the baton passing that is occurring between uh, those who are builders and uh, busters and, and boomers and those who are um, the millennials and others coming up. Um, in, in my circles, uh, Presbyterian Church in America, we don't, we don't have uh, presidents like you have in the SBC, but you do have moderators, of which I've been in uh, my denomination. And I, I've spent a lot of the last 25 years, both as a seminary president uh, and then in denominational offices, trying to get generations to talk to each other and understand one another and put aside what they presume are some of the disloyalties that go both directions. Um, and, and older generation often feeling that a younger, I've actually heard the terminology, will not put on the uniform. And by that they mean there are certain social issues, certain political issues which are by reflex almost the mission of the church in an older generation and when the younger generation will not uh, form up behind those same issues in the same way, the presumption is that you are uh, betraying uh, what we fought for, what we stand for, what we're about. Um, at the same time, uh, there is a younger generation that comes with a different priority and set of understanding and even what the cultural mission of the moment may be and views an older generation as as out of touch and maybe not even gospel oriented. And for that reason, uh, the accusation can be rather strong uh, going both directions of uh, you don't understand the gospel and you're not loyal to the gospel. So um, I've, I've had to deal with a lot of how uh, one faces that and tries to bring uh, generations together around the gospel, and I'll just say some things for a moment that are obvious to you, but say why it intensifies those dynamics and um, why we are different, and then maybe ask even your help in, in SBC circles of how you've learned to deal with some of it, because I know you deal with much of the same issues generationally that we do as well. Uh, just the nature of the evangelical church, if you were to say the last 75 years or so, huge broad strokes, but just kind of quick summary, um, we continue to struggle with the loss of truth. The battle for the Bible is not over. It just continues to take different forms as we continue to say, what is the difference between transcendent truth and individual truth? And th those battles are usually waged not in the pulpit, but in the hermeneutics discussions. And they take different forms, and you find evangelicals who identify themselves as evangelicals, 
who in many ways take the arguments of what we would have looked at as liberal theology from the 1920s through the 1950s, but they're identifying as evangelical. And it's not on the basis of what they believe about the scriptures. It's on the basis of how they interpret the scriptures. So the interpretive debates have brought the, the big T, transcendent truth, and the little t, individual truth, uh, right back into discussion. With a lot of discussion about the loss of truth, there is the reality of the loss of our youth. And uh, some of you know that the traditional figures are being challenged a lot right now with some good research. But let's just say kind of the reflex of a lot of uh, pastors and denominational leaders of evangelical denominations is, we've said this, um, those who grow up in our churches, when they go off to college, roughly two-thirds will not continue to go to church when they go off to college. So out of our Bible-believing evangelical churches, doesn't have to be any particular, across the board, roughly two-thirds will not continue in church when they go to college. Now, there is a time at which they will return to the church. Do you know when they will return to the church? When they start having children. But only one-third of the two-thirds that left will return. And so, uh, now, they're hugely different opinions on this and even statistics on this. And Stetzer is the one who right now is challenging a lot of that and uh, saying that it's overblown. But saying it's overblown is not saying it's unreal. I mean, we just recognize that there is a huge loss of our youth, and particularly no one would debate what that means is it is the loss of the nominals. I mean, nobody questions that of those who are just nominal in our churches, who are long for the ride, who are cultural Christians in our, in our churches, uh, when they are out from under their uh, traditional households, uh, church is not a part of their future. So we, we recognize that in many ways, the loss of youth is the exodus of the nominals from our church because it, it just does not, there's no cultural requirement anymore that you be a, a part of a church setting. What is often surprising to our church is we are not just facing the loss of youth, we are facing the loss of the mature. It is shocking to any number of young pastors in our circles that those who have been officers in their churches, those who are long-time marrieds in their churches, who particularly when their children go off to college or get married, that the decision to stay regular in the church, involved in the church, or committed to a marriage goes away in very large numbers. So that we're not just seeing the loss of youth, we are seeing the loss of the mature, and in particular, <clears throat> this is as a result of the growth of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, the growth of the nuns. When Stetzer does his research, he says it this way, the number of those who self-identify as Bible-believing evangelical Christians in this culture, that number that percentage in our culture has largely not changed since World War II, roughly 30%. Roughly 30% of United States um, population would uh, say, I'm a Bible-believing evangelical Christian in, in general. And that just changes a percentage point or two every year since, since World War II. What, what is changing hugely is of those who were not Bible-believing evangelical Christians, the, the, you know, the 60% of religiously affiliated um, but not Bible-believing evangelical, that religiously affiliated is what's changing so rapidly. 
So those are becoming the nuns. And as that huge bubble in our culture kind of counters against the unchanging 30%, the whole culture is changing in terms of morals, marriage, gender, vote, attitudes, and it's, it's weighing against our nominals when they go to college or when they leave our traditional settings and make their decisions because the weight of the nominalism is so heavy, excuse me, of the nuns, the weight of the nuns is so much moving the nominals in our culture right now. And the consequence is those who are already concerned about cultural erosion and loss of church influence are feeling it all the more. And depending on your age, you have very different solutions to the problem. So just for grins, and you know, this is, I was told, informal, so uh, some things that may be helpful here. If, if you think about what are the different attitudes, and you are just to identify those in our churches who are 50 years old and up, and you would contrast them, and I'm going to create a spectrum here, you know, not, not exactly right, because, you know, these are overlapping categories, those who are 40 and down, they will have very different perspectives on what the church should be doing about the pressures that are coming. And what I would contend for the moment, and you'll have to wrestle through, is so much of this is a consequence of your own background whether that, rather than your perception of what the church ought to be doing. It's, it's not a mission difference in terms of I'm proving the mission out of the Bible. It, it so much is related to my own background in the cultural moment in which I was raised. So you would say, these people, the cultural moment in which they were raised in the church, virtually all of them perceive themselves as evangelical, Bible-living Christians, as those being raised and having voice in a majority Christian culture. When they were being raised and they were going to church and they were saying what it meant to be married and you know what your obligations were in the culture they were basing that on the sense of we're christians and and the majority of people we know are christians and the majority of people in this culture are christians and matter of fact there were political movements that kind of banked on the notion that the majority of people were believers and they simply had to be mobilized right so you have the Jerry Falwell movement, and he says to these people, you have to recognize you are the moral, you're the moral majority. And as the moral majority, um, because you are the pervasive culture, you have certain goals that you should be expressing as the church in a Christian majority culture. The goals were not just to make the culture Christian, but to have church continuity, right? The great threat was, was cultural erosion that would influence the church and lead to church erosion. And so many of these people only view what's happened in the culture in the last 25 years as proof, right? This was what we feared, that there would be cultural erosion that would lead to exodus from the church, the church no longer having voice and influence in the culture. And so the concern of those who wanted church continuity and influence in culture, the great concern was simply Christian erosion. So what was the mission? 
the mission was to mobilize the moral majority. And that meant you needed to take control. And the way, the way that you would take control, and it became the obligation of the church to teach its people to take control, was to win elections. So if we were really doing our job, and mobilizing the moral majority, our goal in a majority Christian culture is to win elections, to turn the clock back, to create continuity, and to stop erosion. Now, just to kind of say, in this generation, who are the culture heroes? Who are the heroes of these guys really stood for the faith, fought for Christ, were undeterred by opposition and ridicule, they, they stood for what was right. Who would those cultural heroes, if you're 15 above, who are those cultural heroes in the church? Who are the heroes? I've mentioned one already. Billy Graham. Dobson. Let's say Dobson. Huge. Uh, Schaefer, although he's going to be a mitigating figure. We'll see in a little bit, right? So Kennedy. So Jim, Jim Kennedy. Who, who, Pat Robertson. You know, so we would say there are those people who would be identified with political conservatism, church conservatism, and the culture wars, uh, standing for what was right, being willing to kind of take the hill. Now, what, what is so surprising to people and difficult for them is for these people who say uh, Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson and Jim Kennedy and Jim Dobson, they are our heroes, now, you know, they may not have won the battle, but they are the heroes. And then you talk to these people, and they say, those aren't the heroes. They were the problem. And just, just hearing that makes these people enraged. And these people don't understand why these people don't understand. <laughs> and there's a reason for that because they have totally different cultural context in which they are raised, all right? This generation viewed itself as part of a Christian majority culture. This generation never in its entire life viewed itself as part of a Christian majority culture. Always they viewed themselves as a Christian minority in a pluralistic culture, always, from the time that they were in their first grade. They always viewed themselves as not having power, not having influence, uh, being pushed out of the way, being a minority culture against greater forces that were taking over the culture and, in fact, already had ascendancy. So they viewed themselves as a minority in a pluralistic culture, which set a different agenda. If, if I'm not a majority and therefore the goal of the church is to take control, if I'm a minority in a non-Christian culture, what does that mean the mission of the church is? Um, the, the concern you have to recognize, if you believe you're a minority in a pluralistic culture, your concern primarily is not Christian erosion. You presume Christian erosion has already occurred. Your concern is not Christian erosion. Your concern is church impotence. No say and no influence. You are not presuming that the mission of the church is to take control by winning elections. 
I mean, that's not even your presumption nor your goal. Your goal is not to take control. Your goal is to make your faith credible. To make your faith credible in an opposition culture. How do I not win elections? How do I win a hearing? How do I? Now, it's still mission. It's still gospel. But I'm not trying to win elections. I'm presuming that's not really the issue anymore. If I'm, if I'm a pastor of a 20-something, 30-something church, I'm trying to say, how do I get my people to get a hearing with their neighbors, with their coworkers, with their non-Christian friends, with their live-ins, whatever it is? How do I make the faith credible? At which point, you have to recognize the, the issue is uh, not, not cultural winning, but the heroes of the moment are not Falwell and Robertson, you know, the, the culture warriors. The heroes over here are the cultural analysts. The ones who've figured out how to have influence and insight into the culture. So who are they? If it's not the culture warriors, but the culture analysts that these people are paying attention to, who are they paying attention to? I've mentioned one already. That's Stetzer. They're listening to Stetzer. Who else are they listening to? Keller. Keller right? Somebody who's, who's, got the, who's got it figured out. Who, who's, who's got the way into the culture. Now, there are certain kind of intermediary figures. Somebody mentioned Schaefer, right? And you'd have to recognize that depending on the era of Schaefer's life, he could flip either way, Right? So you would say there were times he became the culture warrior, but there were other times in which he became the cultural analyst. Colson would be the same way, right? So Colson could kind of play both sides of the fence and be respected by both groups depending on issue, time, and particular uh, personalities uh, in play. To, to see how it changes things, you have to say, if, if my goal over here is to take control, to stop erosion, then largely what gets adopted over here is a theology of halt. We need to take control to stop certain things that are creating erosion in this culture. And if you were to say, what was the number one issue in the evangelical Bible-believing church that was mitigating between the church, but if the church was going to do its job, it would influence elections and principles by which people would vote. The number one issue that had to be stopped was what? Abortion. So, you know, that was an issue that had to be dealt with and stopped. Number two issue, after abortion, was what else had to be stopped? Homosexuals. I mean, we know these things. I mean, it's, it's, it's in our instincts, Right? I mean, nobody, nobody informed you before you sat down. We just know that, that if you're a church doing its job and the expectation, if you're a pastor doing your job, and if you're a seminary training pastors to do their jobs, you have equipped people and informed them of how they are going to organize their people to halt abortion and the homosexual agenda. There are other things, of course, that we've almost forgotten by this point. Um, major issues was stopping marital erosion. 
So training people to deal with and stop divorce, it's so acceptable now that we hardly even touch it, right? It's a third rail. Those of you from Chicago <laughs> know the third rail. You know, it's it's going to kill you if you touch that one. Do you actually remember this thing that was known as the ERA? Remember when the whole church nationwide was supposed to, you know, kind of get behind the opponents of the ERA? And uh, because we needed to stop those things which were changing marriage and gender understanding in our culture. I'm going to run out of room here at the bottom. But, you know, there, there are others. Certainly pornography. Particularly, do you remember that there were entire organizations that, that had ministries to fight pornography? And got millions and millions of donors and dollars and people behind them. To, to stop pornography, even in the pre-internet era as it was beginning to uh, affect our, our culture so profoundly. Uh, all kinds of addictive issues, and depending on your age, you'll almost say these, these vary. Um, sometimes it was drugs, sometimes gambling, but more recently, gaming. Okay? So the church needs to organize to fight addictions. Still on the agenda, if you're really Bible-believing, politically on the right side of things, you need to organize to fight illegal immigration. Okay, so that's the, the mission and the goal of the church as uh, it is doing its job. Uh, we have forgotten uh, my denomination largely formed as an anti-communist denomination, right? So you need to organize. I'm just running out of room down here. Communism and socialism, kind of the, you know, the twins of the apocalypse, you know, communism. And we forget a lot of what drove um, dispensational rapture theory was anti-communism. You know, they, they kind of married in this culture. And so much of what took over perceptions in our church was uh, political, military, cultural, theological marriages between dispensationalism, conservative politics, and anti-communism. And so it gave a, a lot of a push in the culture for that. The last, again, if you just kind of say, and you could keep numbering these things, I mean, if you were really doing your job as a church and training your people, you were trying to halt abortion, homosexuality, divorce, pornography, addiction, communism, illegal immigration, and tree huggers <laughs> who were part of the liberal agenda. Now, what about these people? I will tell you, these things, if, if you talk to the pastors of the 20-something churches, you know, primarily young people in their 20s and 30s, I will tell you, you don't hear many sermons on these things. It's not that the issues are untouched, however, because this, if the goal is to win a hearing, to gain credibility, to have people listen to my gospel claims, what is going to give me credibility in particularly a secular, pluralistic culture that will open the door for people to hear the gospel? Not anti-abortion messages, halt abortion. But rather, instead of messages of compulsion, 
messages of compassion. And the way that gets interpreted is we do not speak against abortion. We speak for, what's the contrary issue? We speak for life and particularly adoption and foster care. And I would speak about my own church at this point, which is a multi-generational church. And I recognize that this generation will cheer when I speak about this, and this generation will cheer when I speak about this. And we have huge mechanisms for both issues under one roof, but they are almost entirely generationally split, right? It's this generation that's involved here, and it's this generation that's involved here. Um, if you say, what's the issue that's dealing with the homosexual agenda? First of all, the word homosexual would not be used, right? That, which, which is viewed as discriminatory and pejorative and uncaring to start with. Uh, lots of people in our circles do not want to use the word gay because they feel that concedes too much. So we even adopt the alphabet of the movement, right? LGBTQ, you know, and so we, we're willing to do that. But at the same time, we hardly ever talk about halting the homosexual agenda. Rather, we talk about ministering to those with AIDS and those who are confused about gender, identity, or even their adolescent choices. I mean, you almost can't not be an informed pastor in today's culture and recognize that, you know, Kinsey to now, the amount of young people identifying as um, uh, same-sex attracted would be well under 3% up until the last three years, and now it's up around 12%. And it's simply by saying, making all young people question what most young people go through. You know, almost everybody goes some through, you know, am I okay or I'm not okay, you know. And now saying, if you don't feel like you're okay, you're probably gay has got lots of young people going that way, and if all that they hear their pastor doing is banging away here, they are very quickly making decisions to exit. And so we have pastors saying, I've got to talk about compassion for those with AIDS or those who are confused as a different way of dealing with those things. Um, We don't so much talk about being against divorce uh, let me get, use another pen here. As being for divorce, what, recovery? Because it is so uh, pervasive in our churches that people are struggling with that. Some of the issues that we talked about with divorce and the Equal Rights Amendment that we were against have been substituted for issues like wage parity, which almost nobody can be against. You know, and say it's just about being fair. Now, again, even if you're not advocating that, you may say, I may need to acknowledge the fairness of wage parity to win a hearing. Again, different agenda to win a a hearing. We hardly ever talk about um, the addictions, about pornography. We don't talk about pornography so much. Uh, If we do, it's in the men's, it's in the small groups, Right? We do talk a lot about sex trafficking and sexual slavery. 
And because we talk about sexual slavery, we don't talk so much about the addictions of pornography and drugs and gaming and gambling. We don't talk about addictions. We talk about victims. And if that sounds like compromise, you may not be a pastor from a small town where the opioid crisis is killing your families. I mean, pervasive. And often because of drug companies and doctors who didn't know what they were doing, right, or didn't know what they were doing in love of the prophet. I've had people in my congregation die. Maybe you have too. And these were not, I mean, these were not people from, you know, the streets. This is an affluent church with highly educated people. And the opioid crisis is amazing in this culture right now. And if all we're doing is banging away on the, on the dumb addicts, we do not have a hearing of sometimes adult children or their parents, right, who are both attending the church. So we talk about uh, victims. We don't talk about, if you could see down there, illegal immigration. If you're in a 20, what, what are these people talking about? They're not talking about illegal immigration. They're talking about refugees. And they're talking about third world debt. And what would Christ call us to in care for those who need the help of the affluent, most affluent nation in the history of the world? We don't talk so much about communism and socialism. If you're in this group, you certainly do talk a lot about poverty and racism. And whether or not we can be a church in this culture that is all white and affluent and middle class. I will just tell you, my children would not attend our church if it were all white. They would, they would presume that that is a denial of the gospel. And we taught them that. We taught them that the gospel is not just for a certain segment of the culture, but that we would be for slave and free, Jew and Greek, that the gospel would reach across boundaries. And if they see us only reinforcing boundaries, we have taught our own children that that is not the gospel, and they actually believe us. And typically, we do not speak so much against tree huggers as for creation care. And so you even know the language. I see it on your, you even know the language. You're talking about creation care. And we do that believing that's in the Bible, right? We are called to be stewards of that creation. What this ultimately means, if you could kind of put the summary down here, is here is a group that was seeking control. This was the church seeking control. And this is the church seeking credibility. And when they don't understand generationally that that doesn't mean you have forsaken the gospel or found a new gospel, but you are ministering in a very different culture to very different people, then the accusations grow so quickly that, that the church begins to divide and fracture and name call instead of hearing one another. What, what I have done, it's not the first time I've drawn this up on a board, you know, what I have done in different groups in my own church, sometimes groups that are very angry at one another, is to try to say, what, what is common between these lists? You know, one of the things that you have to say is, is common is that they both believe the Bible. These are biblical issues. And among the things that they believe is they, buy, they believe the Bible addresses these issues. They believe the Bible addresses issues of life and 
those who need to be recognized as valuable, though the culture will discard them. They recognize that they are those who are broken, current cliche language. <laughs> Instead of sinful, we say broken, right? They recognize those who are sinful who need help, but they recognize that the degree of twistedness in this culture means that those who are everywhere about us are struggling to know who they are. And if all they hear from us is anger and rage, they will not listen to the church. They will run from the church. But they both recognize this is sin because they believe the Bible. They both want to preserve marriages. They both believe that sexual trafficking and what it leads to is wrong. But they're so often, you know, pulling at different ends of the issue. Uh, it's, it's product or it's supply. You know, which is the proper focus? But they both believe it's wrong. Among the thing that they are all believing in all of these issues is that we are made in the image of God. And because we are made in the image of God, all are to be valued and even treated with respect. And adoption and AIDS relief and divorce recovery and care for victims is all saying what we actually believe deeply and profoundly about the gospel. And that is, your being whole is not what makes you right before God or valuable to God. It's the fact that you're made in the image of God that makes you treasured to God and hopefully to your church and to others. And if we are not embracing the image-bearing nature of every person, finally what all these people are acknowledging is the importance of the Great Commission. Now, they have different strategies for fulfilling it. Right? depending on what they don't see, culture and background and the generation in which they were raised, how that Great Commission is to go forward. But they all agree that the Great Commission is in play and that we are obligated to find the best way that we can to carry it out. They agree with that. Now, they disagree with how, but they do agree with the what. We are obligated to find out how best to carry out the Great Commission. What will unite us? First, actually believing that we are trying to be biblical, though from different generations. Believing that being made in the image of God is not just something to be directed to people outside the church. But you, my brother, when you're so mad at me in the church, that I have to learn to forgive and respect and speak kindly of in the church as well as those outside the church. And finally, to believe that this great commission is about the grace of God that is for all people. And I need it, and you need it, and candidly, until we are humbled by the reality that apart from the grace of God, I am subject to every problem here, then I'm not really ready to deal with you, my brother. Because in humility, I have to say, I didn't see it. I haven't got it all right. I'm still struggling. I'm still walking. You help me. I'll try to help you. You help me too. And in in humility, because of the grace of God, fountain the grace that makes us all a different church as we seek to understand one another and bridge some difficulties. Now, that's all I got for you.
I'm, I'm not SBC, but believe me, I'm in a lot of uh, SBC settings. I will tell you, I do not know of a, of a denomination in which these dynamics are not in play. I do not know a denomination in which it's not in play. It's, it's as odd to me as, now here I'm PCA, so a Bible-believing Presbyterian, okay? And uh, one of my uh, friends has held my position in the Assemblies of God. And you could hardly have people of tradition, you know, kind of more different. And he invited me a few years ago to their church planting conference. So the Assemblies of God National Church Planting Conference. And there was a kind of a large open forum at some point. And I will tell you something. It was exactly the same issues by exactly the same generation, right? And, and just angry, you know, kind of why, you know, why don't the young pastors do X, why are the old pastors so stuck in X, you know, and just not willing to give each other a break or even willing at times to understand, and I'm not just talking about Assemblies of God, I'm talking about my own denomination too, not willing to understand that if you're raised in a different era, you might validly have a different perspective that I need to understand and graciously deal with in my own generation. 